So no one could have predicted Jesus as stand-in for sin 700 years before without insider information. Let me say that again because there's kind of a lot there. No one could have predicted that Jesus was a stand-in for our sin 700 years early without insider information. If you struggle with the idea that the Bible is the Word of God, that this is a revelation from God to show us truths about Him we otherwise couldn't possibly know, if you struggle with that some, then I submit for your consideration today Isaiah chapter 53 as exhibit A in evidence, uh, as evidence that someone somewhere with lots of insider information was behind all of this. Chapter 53 in Isaiah is the heart of a very important and long book in the Old Testament. And in Isaiah 53, it's the heart of the argument because at this point everything changes because there's just been a report, uh, a long coming report, a good news report of peace that will come in the future. So God has been telling the people in Isaiah through the prophet Isaiah that he has plans to bring the people back from exile, back to their homeland, to live with him. And chapter 53 introduces the person who will bring this peace to the people. But here's the thing. This peace comes at a great, great cost in a way that was far different than expected and for a purpose that extended far beyond what they could see as just coming back to their homeland. They thought at the time, hey, God's going to return the people to our homeland. We'll live in peace with him. And, and, and yet that's true. But this meant far more than that. And before we jump into Isaiah 53, which we'll do in just a moment here, there is some important preceding context you need to understand. The previous chapter in 52 has just announced for the people of Israel that a servant will come who will be sort of the surprising and unexpected mix of, of exalted and kingly. He said, uh, Isaiah says he's high and exalted, and yet at the same time, it says something strange. His appearance will be marred beyond human semblance, which is a strange and unexpected mix, especially for someone who is said to bring salvation for the people of Israel. That's what chapter 52 has just set up. So that's why chapter 53, jump in with me here, verse 1, begins with two questions. Two questions. It says, verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So first question says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? Meaning, who in the world would believe this report about the servant of God coming to bring salvation who is both exalted, high and exalted, chapter 52 says, and yet lowly. Isaiah 52 says he's going to be lifted up like a king. There are a number of places in Isaiah up to this point which talk about the Messiah being a king. But it also says that people will be horrified at his appearance, which will be marred beyond human recognition as human, beyond recognition as human. Not only that, but it says that this is how the servant king is going to cleanse the nations. So you can, you can make sense of question one, right? Like, who would believe such a report? 
No one can see that coming. Question two. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? If you just insert the word so in front of the word revealed, you'll get a sense of what that question means there. To whom has God ever reached down? The arm of the Lord in Scripture is how He reaches down to make His will known. To whom has the arm of the Lord been so revealed? The answer, of course, being no one. So given a context, as we've got so far, that a a servant king, who will be highly exalted on the one hand, and yet lowly on the other, who would expect that? (laughs) Verse 1 says, uh, no one. No one would believe that report. And the arm of the Lord has, has not been so revealed to anyone. No one could have seen it coming. No one could have seen it coming. Which is why verse 2 says this. For he grew up before him, meaning before God. This implies a close relationship between God and this servant king. For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground. Now, Isaiah the prophet here is referring back to what he has said in chapter 11, uh, verses 1 and following there. He speaks clearly there in chapter 11 of the Messiah's coming. He says, there shall come forth a shoot. That's another word for like a, a small young plant. A shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So imagine for a second here, a tree that's been cut down and you've got just the stump left. What Isaiah is doing here is he's grabbing a bunch of things uh, in Scripture and especially in Isaiah and he's putting them together. So imagine a tree that's been cut down, you've got only stump left. The tree appears dead, there's not a leaf, there's not a branch that survived the cutting. Yet, think about how this actually works. Many months later, even after a long, hard winter, even if the ground is dry and fallow, even after uh, several months of nothing happening several feet away from the stump, a small little plant can come up from the roots below. Still springing up, a new tree can grow, right? Isaiah is saying here that when God's in charge, salvation can come, so to speak, sort of out of left field, like unexpectedly, in ways you didn't even see coming. Like a young plant sprouting from the underground roots several feet away, and even after it seems like there's no hope. (laughs) Isaiah is saying, don't count out God's plans. Don't count out God's plans, Isaiah says, because they are higher than ours. Isaiah 55 says that same thing. They are higher than ours. This whole chapter is unexpected surprise. More of it. Look at this. Not only does the Savior come out of left field, keep reading, verse 2, but He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, no beauty that we should desire Him. In in other words, there was nothing particularly special or impressive uh, about His looks, uh, which means He didn't look like someone who would be chosen naturally to be king, right? According to the world's standards. More surprises here, but they begin to become sort of unpleasant ones. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by man, by men. He's called a man of sorrows. 
Isaiah says he was acquainted with grief. He was as one from whom men hid their faces. He was so despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 3 here describes this uh, servant king as sort of shunned and isolated from his own people, experiencing great pain and suffering and even despised. I mean, think about it. (laughs) Man of sorrows doesn't sound like a worldly king who we could look at and say, oh, successful, attractive, powerful. Man of sorrows and acquainted with grief does not describe a worldly king that would be expected or as we might think who comes with outward shows of power and might. This whole thing is is different than people were expecting. Look at this uh, in verse 4. More unexpected surprise. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Notice in verse 3 it says he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because here in verse 4 he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. This is where the text begins to, to insert us in the picture here. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet, keep reading, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This is a way here of saying uh, that even though he was bearing the griefs and sorrows for others, onlookers saw his suffering as the just wrath of God for sins he committed. Like, why wouldn't they see it like that? (laughs) That's how they saw their own, right? Like he deserved the punishment he was receiving on the cross. We know that this is referring to the punishment of the cross because, keep reading, verse 5, he was pierced, meaning like with a sword. This word pierced here is typically used to refer to someone who is run through by the sword and dies because of it. Uh, one Hebrew scholar says, uh, goes so far as to say that, that this word pierced here is the strongest term uh, for a violent and excruciating death that the Hebrew language had. So, this servant king, <laughs> high and low, was pierced, it says, keep reading, for our transgressions, meaning for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. Uh, Crushed there is is a word used to speak of of breaking into pieces, even to the point of of, uh, pulverizing something into dust. So he was pierced for our transgressions, a parallel there, crushed for our iniquities. And then it says, upon him was the chastisement, which is just a fancy word for, for punishment here. This is why we say Jesus took our punishment. It says, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, meaning peace with God. And and in case it isn't yet clear that this is an unexpected servant king who takes on our punishment by suffering in our place, Isaiah tells us, keep reading, verse 5, upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds, that word is also translated as stripes, which is something New Testament writers later pick up on. With his wounds, we are healed. Think of, think of the stark contrast here. With his wounds, we are healed. 
This is a strange method of healing. His suffering, literally here, his beating, which resulted in his wounds, is how we are healed. Do you think sin is important? It's by his wounds we are healed. This is a strange healing that is meant for all who are guilty, (laughs) which the text next says is all. Keep reading. Verse 6. All we, like sheep, who are less than wise and known to be distracted and to walk off cliffs for no reason, just because they're unaware and distracted, all we, like sheep, it says, verse 6, have gone astray. Sheep get lost. It's what sheep do. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one despite how amazing your mom told you you were, no exceptions to this rule. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice it says that that God the Father placed on this servant king the sins of all. Not only did he take our punishment, and die in our place. Isaiah goes on to tell us in the next few verses that he did so innocently and willingly. Keep reading, verse 7. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, treated harshly and, and burdened. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, meaning he was a willing uh, participant. He submitted to this process like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The servant king here doesn't cry out and he doesn't protest. Think about this. Innocent servant king does not protest the injustice of his sufferings. Though he would qualify as the only one who has ever lived who could justly cry out at the injustice of his sufferings. It's no accident that the only extended metaphor in this entire chapter involves sheep, which are the primary Old Testament animal used in sacrifice. This passage is why later passages in the New Testament speak of Jesus as the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. Keep reading in verse 8. By oppression and judgment, by oppression and judgment, He was taken away. And as for His generation who considered that He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. This is a question here. This is a way to say that who in his day would have cared, right? Nobody cared about what happened to him then. This makes sense with what follows. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Now, these are weird things to say together, right? Like, on the one hand, they made his grave with the wicked, which is in the plural, 
alongside a rich man, which is in the singular. That's a weird thing to put together here. Uh, but it will eventually fit with what the New Testament gospel writers report hundreds of years later, 700 plus years later, about Jesus being buried with the criminals, plural, but in a rich man's tomb, singular, Joseph of Arimathea. It's the kind of thing that lends credence to these prophecies in Isaiah being fulfilled in Jesus. Keep reading verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verses 7 to 9 here make clear that although this servant king was, was innocent, he willingly accepted his death. Now, here's what the unexpected and surprising plan of God does. Look at verses 10 to 12 here. Yet it was the will of God to crush him. Even though it involved the suffering of an innocent stand-in for sin, it was the will of God to crush him. This is how unexpected and surprising the plan is. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Think about this. God the Father planned for this unexpected plan all along. But listen to what this crazy plan achieves. Listen to this extraordinary statement. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He will see his own children. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It sounds crazy to say, but, but the servant king's sacrifice for sin, meaning his death, brings life and prosperity for him and his children. He shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days is a Hebrew way of saying that this servant king's death, far from being pointless as it seemed to them and as it seems to us on the face of it, far from being useless and pointless, his death will be in fact what makes him fruitful and us fruitful. It's like saying that God is fruitful even in his own death. Think of how many of his offspring are gathered today, here, across the world. We are gathered today as testimony to the truth of verse 10. Jesus' death, far from being pointless, was actually supernaturally fruitful in a way that only creator of the universe God can plan and execute. Look at these benefits as they continue to God's surprising plan. Look at verse 11. This is amazing. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Think about this. Even as he is suffering, this servant king sees the plan of God for the sheep and is satisfied. This is the depth of God's love for you. The purpose of his suffering is enough to keep him in the game for your soul. 
out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see your life as a result of his death and be satisfied to stick with it through the suffering because of the will of God. It says this, By his knowledge, knowledge here isn't just an intellectual thing, it's an, it's an intimate, it's a deep, it's a personal knowledge of experience, right? So by that kind of knowledge shall the righteous one, and now God is talking at this point, shall the righteous one, my servant, which is the same way this whole section opens up in 52.13. So this is God speaking here. By virtue of what my servant intimately knows and has experienced, he will make many to be accounted righteous, meaning justified as right before the Father. It says he shall bear the iniquities. As a result, verse 12, God the Father exalts him. He says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, which is just common imagery to describe a conqueror coming back, sharing the spoils with allies. He is exalted because, again, in case you missed it, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Profound thought here to say is that the innocent servant king is a stand-in for your sin, which is absolutely amazing. He is exalted because, in case you missed it, (laughs) he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. He bore, keep reading, he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. He is a stand-in for sinners. He is the sin bearer. Now when we say, and this is a complicated term, I'll say it a couple times, uh, when we say as sort of Bible-believing people that we believe in the penal substitutionary atonement, uh, penal substitutionary atonement, that's fancy doctrinal language uh, for Jesus died for our sins, When we say that, what we mean to say is something absolutely amazing, surprising, difficult, and totally different than anyone expected. This is super important to understand. Jesus does not suffer and die merely because of our sin. But he suffers and dies instead of us. Think about the implications of this. His death isn't just like this sort of alongside us death. It's an instead of death. Hear this amazing truth, friends. (laughs) Jesus died instead of you. He doesn't call you to have to pay for sins alongside him. Which means that God the Father intended all along for us to no longer have to experience and bear with the weight of sin that we cannot. He identified with us so entirely that His death counted instead of our death. This means... This means 
You don't have to manipulate anybody else for self. It means you can stop putting so much pressure on your kids. It means that you don't have to put so much pressure on your job or your spouse or your whatever. I mean, the question is, do you really believe that Jesus' death as a stand-in was enough for you or do you not? Many of us who follow Jesus live in this constant state of wallowing in a self-pity or a manipulation of others because we think that since we were the cause of his death, that now we must forever pay for being that cause. You can't. And when you try, it means there's something you're not tracking with that God is in instead of, in the person of Jesus, death for your sin. Either He was a sufficiently perfect sacrifice for you and His death makes you free before God or He was insufficient and imperfect and His sacrifice was for naught and you'd better get working a little harder because you're over when it comes to being perfect, friends. He had a plan to make up for your sin. And I want you to think about this. Over 700 years before Jesus was even born, Isaiah prophesied there would be a man who would be slain as a lamb, and his wounds would heal your sin. If Jesus died as he claims, then what we just studied in Isaiah 53 is not mere symbolism or fanciful metaphor or makes for some kind of nice redemption story. But in the person of Jesus, all that came true, which is to say that Jesus really, he actually, he fully, and he finally died in place of your sins. Not only because you can't, but because you don't, have to. Freedom from sin means understanding that he was a stand-in. Not on a long side. First Peter, the first chapter, verses 18 to 21, we referred to a little bit last week. Um, it's a verse um, that we're going to be using throughout this series. Um, it's a few verses here that we're going to use throughout this series because... Because they summarize the truths we're hitting at each week in this Easter Eggs series. But they add a super cool emphasis. We're going to read through this here in just a second. They add a super cool emphasis on the idea that that God had planned all along for Jesus to be your Savior. Think about that. The God of the universe. Perfect. Sinless. Holy. Beyond the best descriptions that humanity has ever come up with. That God planned from eternity past for Jesus to be your Savior because He knew you couldn't be. God planned all along before you existed to account for your sin by sending Jesus to live a sinless and righteous life for you. We've been saying it like this. Before the foundation of the world, God planned to use the blood of Jesus to purify your soul. Before the foundation of the world, God planned to use the blood of Jesus to purify your soul. God is so good and He loves you so much that He came up with a way to account for your failings before you even knew you needed Him. It's real easy in this world of illusion of control 
of luxury that feels like power, of of self-confidence that looks like and feels like I know what I'm doing. (laughs) It's easy in this world to not understand this. God is so good and he loves you so much that he came up with a way to account for your failings before you even knew you needed him. So I want us to read 1 Peter 1, 18 to 21 aloud together here in just a moment, but with a small twist. The overwhelming majority of the time that we come across the word you in the Bible, it's in the plural. And that's the case in this verse in 1 Peter 1, 18 to 21. But I want you to read it with me aloud together right here, right now, as if it were written to you personally. So read along with me. 1 Peter, starting in verse 18. I was ransomed from the futile ways inherited from my forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for my sake, who through Him is a believer in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. When you finally admitted you've reached the end of yourself, you're not that amazing. You're at the end of your resources. You're at the end of your goodness. Your smarts have come to an end. And you're to the end of your awesomeness that your mama lied to you about. Only then are you finally ready to say, with Peter and with fellow believers and with those who understand that Jesus Christ alone can bear the weight of your sin, my hope and my faith are in God. Let's pray for Lord, it is in Your Word, lived in Jesus, written down for us, that we come to know the amazing truth that You loved us so much that You accounted for sin before we even knew we needed it. Father, we're forever grateful to You for this. We ask that Your Son, Jesus' sacrifice for us would teach us how to live. Would make us aware, Lord, of what You've called us to do. We ask, Lord, that You would give us the strange joy of Christ-like self-sacrifice that proves You're a God who is real, who is accounted for sin, who loves us, and who carried out a plan to die, to be buried, and to be raised to new life so that we could have forever relationship with you. Please continue to teach us, Lord, what these truths mean. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.